Hi everyone, I'm Luke. I'm going to be reading Romans chapter 11, verse 1 to 10. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people, whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appeared to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed um, your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. They elect among, uh, the elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear. To this very day, and David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a, rep, uh, and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Well, friends, a very warm uh, good evening to you. Uh, can I just say, this new heating system we have is brilliant. I remember when I was a student uh, visiting St. Jude's and there would be blankets and doonas. That was the extent. It was more theoretical heating. We have actual heating, so you can always uh, feel like it's summertime. I think it's set to Queensland. We've just turned it back down to New South Wales, so hopefully uh, it won't be too hot for you. Well, friends, uh, as you know, we're looking through not Romans 9 to 11. Uh, and the big point we have tonight before us is grace is amazing and grace is unsettling. Grace is amazing and grace is unsettling. When I was a young assistant minister, a bit like Sam, young, keen, full of beans, uh, which Sam is, which is great, uh, our church was right next to a school and they would use that school on election day where people would come and vote and we thought, well, here's our chance to engage with our community. And we thought, what, what is a great way to explain grace? And so what we did was this. We set up a barbecue on the Saturday morning for bacon and egg rolls. Winner, right? And we decided that the best way to explain grace was to give them away. Free bacon and egg rolls. Barbecue sauce dripping down the sides. Who's getting hungry right now? Stay around for dinner. We've got a pizza. But anyway, the idea was this, this is grace, right? Something for free. It would pink people's interest. What's the church on about? The church is on about grace. Now, this, of course, um, was brilliant, right? Um, not just because I thought about it, but, but because it really told people about grace. But there was a small problem. It was a complete disaster. You wouldn't think about it, but it was a complete disaster. Uh, nobody got it. Everyone was terrified that there was a catch. People wanted to pay for the bacon egg roll. They thought we were fundraising. They kind of take one, then throw money at us. I was chasing people down the street. It's free, come back. It's... That's not a good look when you're chasing people down the street, trying to throw food at them. Not good for the gospel. We literally, and I, I'm using this word appropriately because Fiona will be happy, we literally couldn't give them away. What was the problem? 
Well, the problem is, yes, grace is amazing, but grace is unsettling. It is actually quite unnatural when we come face to face with grace. And I think that there are at least two reasons why. And the first one is that most of our relationships are transactional. Now, what I mean by transactional is we live in a you-get-what-you-deserve world, or at least you-should-get-what-you-deserve world. The mark you get at university should be a reflection of the hard work that you put in during the week, not just the cramming you did in the five minutes before the exam, right? That is what we live in, a transactional world, and grace undermines that. I think, secondly, grace undermines agency and choice. And agency and choice are two really big values that we we hold high culturally. Because grace isn't something we receive, not something we choose to get. We don't earn gifts. You can give hints. My son is turning uh, 12 next uh, weekend. And there's a long list of hints on our fridge door about what he would like. Lots of Lego, lots of great things. But ultimately, it's up for other people to decide what gift they're going to give us and how much money they're going to spend and when they're going to give it to us. And so grace can actually be unsettling because grace means you are not in control, you don't have agency, and we love to be in control. Now, we've been preaching through Romans 9 to 11, looking at this big theme of a sovereign God. And if we think back right to chapter 9, the very big question that Paul is helping us think through is this. If Israel, God's chosen, promised, and covenantal people, are his chosen and promised and covenantal people, why are so many of them seemingly separated from God's promised Messiah and Christ? Why are so few following Christ if Christ is where all of these Old Testament promises led to? The big question behind that is, of course, well, has God actually been faithful to his promises? Can we trust God's promises? Does his word hold true? And what Paul's been doing is answering that question to this church in Rome, which would have both Jewish and non-Jewish, referred to as Gentile believers. And Paul says, no, God's word hasn't failed. It has not failed. Even though, as a whole, Israel has not turned to Christ. And there are two big themes that Paul constantly comes back to time and time again. And these themes sit in tension. On one hand, which is particularly in in chapter 9, but not limited to chapter 9, is God's divine sovereignty. And in chapter 10 we see Israel's responsibility. God's divine uh, sovereignty. He will have mercy on who he will have mercy. But also Israel are at fault. They haven't actually listened to God's word. And chapter 11, we find Paul continuing this argument. And he focuses in on this very key thing that God's saving grace must be sovereign grace. In fact, if it's not sovereign grace, it can't actually be saving grace. 
Let's look at the text together. We're starting, unsurprisingly, at verse 1. A good place to start. Notice Paul once again asks this question. Did God reject his people? Has God failed? Has he failed to keep this promise that Israel will be a blessing to the nations? And Paul's answer is, by no means. It's a very uh, uh, strong way of saying, no chance, tell him he's dreaming. God has kept his promise and God has not rejected his people. And then Paul does, he, he gives four reasons why. Four reasons why it's not the case that God has rejected his people. And the first one is, he points to himself in verse 1. He says, I myself am an Israelite. And he makes it even stronger. I'm a descendant of Abraham, to whom these great promises were made. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, one of the 12 tribes. He's saying, look, God has not rejected Israel. Guess what? I am one. And so we can know that God has not stopped caring for his people. Look at me, he says. That's number one, short and sweet. Secondly, he says, look, God has not rejected his people. He foreknew Israel. That's uh, word for word what he says in verse 2. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Now, we need to understand what, what Paul means by that word, foreknew. It's not simply looking into the future and knowing the result. It's not as if God had a time machine and worked out who would choose him. Like, you know, he had a time machine, you could go into the future, find the lotto results, right? You come back to the present, which is now the past. It's all very confusing. But you put your form in and, and you, you win. It's not like that. The idea of foreknowing is much closer to the idea of forechoosing. He doesn't just know the outcome. It implies a commitment, a promise into the future. He has chosen his people. And because God has made that promise, it can't be broken. So foreknowing is much closer to forechoosing than just knowing intellectually what's going to happen. And we actually see this back in chapter 8, if you can think back to two years ago, those who were here two years ago, uh, 8.29, where it says, for, God, uh, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So he foreknew Israel. He says, point to myself, look at me, and remember, God has forechosen Israel. Thirdly, God has not rejected his people. Remember Elijah. Remember Elijah, he says. Remember those days. Now, what do his Paul is doing here is comparing his time to the terrible time of the days of Elijah. And he quotes from 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 10. Uh, this is not what you call an inspirational quote. No one has this at the bottom of their email footer, right? Saying this is my, my go-to verse. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left and they are trying to kill me. Needless to say, Elijah is not having a particularly good day. Why? Well, a bit of context here. Uh, this is during the time of King Ahab, who is making Israel really bad again. He's one of the worst kings of all of Israel. And he marries this woman called Jezebel. 
And they have led Israel to worship this foreign god, Baal. And they've killed God's prophets. And it's during this time that Elijah sent by God to tell Israel, hey guys, you're worshipping the wrong gods and you're killing God's prophets. A relatively hostile situation to go into. Not the best of times for God's people. And so Paul says in verse 6, and what was God's answer to Elijah? It was this, I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. See what Paul is saying is just, just as there was in those extremely dark times during Elijah's prophecy, there was a remnant and so there is today amongst God's people. But notice too, firstly, did you notice that this is a remnant reserved by God? And secondly, to notice that it's a a remnant reserved for God. In other words, God is the one who is active in in safeguarding this remnant. This isn't arguing about the nature of people. Paul is not saying, look, there were some faithful people in Elijah's day, just as there are some faithful people now. No, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is very clear in verse 5. It's God's sovereign grace in keeping this remnant. Verse 5, so too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Chosen by grace. See what Paul's saying here? He's saying that the reason, in fact, the only reason that there's a remnant, both in Elijah's day and in Paul's day, is because people have been chosen by sovereign God. God's grace is sovereign grace. That's Paul's point for Elijah's day, for Paul's day, and for our day. In other words, there has always been in Israel a faithful remnant chosen by God, a spiritual Israel within Israel even when it seemed like entirely the whole nation had rejected God. No, God in his mercy kept a remnant. God has not forsaken his people then, says Paul. God has saved his people by grace and God has chosen his people by grace. It is sovereign grace. And not surprisingly, his fourth argument picks up this entire idea, this entire idea. It's about grace, says Paul. Have a look at verses five and six together. So too, at the present time, that is in the church in Rome right now, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. See, Paul's making it very clear here. Your election depends entirely on God's grace, not your works. In other words, Paul's saying, look, it's actually not about you, it's about God. See, the contrast here Paul is making is between works on one hand and grace on the other hand. It's not a contrast between two different types of human activity. 
He's not saying this is the right human response, follow God, do these things. This is the bad human response, don't follow God, do these things, uh, don't do these things. He's not saying Israel should have done this, but instead they did that. What he's saying is this is God's work, sovereign grace. It's a divine activity. It's what God does. And this, on the other hand, is a human activity. It is works. It is what we do. And Paul says only one of those things saves you. And that's God's grace. And the point of this contrast is to teach us that if we think our election is based on anything we do, even our faith, then it's no longer grace. It's no longer grace. If we provide the decisive act by which we are saved, then it's no longer sovereign grace. How could God's grace be sovereign if it depends on us starting the whole thing off? Imagine this. Even if God could look ahead in time, if he can, by the way, and even if he chose those people who he knew would choose him, those people are not chosen by divine grace. They are chosen by the decisive human act of choosing God first. And that would mean that God would just be a responder. And our action would be the cause. And then grace would no longer be grace. See, friends, grace must be completely undeserved or it's not grace. Grace must be completely sovereign or it's not grace. Grace must be entirely free or it's not grace. The starting gun of, of grace, of salvation, sits with God and God alone. God's grace is sovereign from beginning to end. That's the, Paul, that's the point that Paul is trying to make us understand here, help us understand here. And then from verse 7, he gives us an implication. Those who are not chosen are hardened. Verse 7. What then? What did the people of Israel sought so earnestly they did not attain? The elect among them did, but the rest, sorry, but the others were hardened. Paul is saying here the remnant, those chosen obtained it, that is righteousness, a right standing before God, salvation, and the rest did not just not attain righteousness, but were also hardened. Hardened. The hardening of a heart to God's mercy. See, friends, here's the very hard truth about our hard hearts. A hard heart becomes increasingly harder and more stubborn and more religious and more self-righteous unless, unless we are given a new heart. Our hearts are so sinful they cannot choose God. The Puritans used to say that the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. 
So why are these hearts hardened? Well, once again, it comes back to these two big truths that have, that have been ex expounded for us in Romans 9 to 11. The complete freedom and sovereignty of God on one hand and the guilt and accountability of humanity on the other. God's sovereignty. It is true that God is active and free to harden hearts. Look at verse 8. As it is written, God gave them, God gave them, not they just had, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And we've seen this already in Romans 9. God's glory doesn't depend upon our choices. God is never dependent upon our will for his choices. He will have mercy on ever whom uh, he has mercy and harden whomever he wills. That's Romans 9.18. And so the first thing we have to say and wrestle with and understand is on the basis of hardening, this is primarily and firstly about God's action. But secondly, at the same time, as we read in verses 9 to 10, God's sovereignty does not excuse human responsibility. We have to hold both these things together. In verse 9, uh, he says, and David says, and then Paul will quote Psalm 69, verses 22 to 23. He says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. See in verse 9 that word retribution. In other words, these people are guilty and, and, and rightly face punishment for wrong. They are not morally neutral. So the problem is we think humanity is like Switzerland for two reasons. First of all, the chocolate. We like chocolate. But, but, but more theologically speaking, that we're somehow neutral in this discussion. But friends, the starting point for humanity is not neutrality towards God. It is enmity towards God. We're not sitting on the fence. We're not waiting to make a choice. We have already chosen and we chose sin. And this hardening is a result of our sin. See, the point Paul is saying here is, look, it's actually not unjust. It is actually justice. And what's the result of this hardness and sin? Well, in verse 9, we see that good things become a trap. May their table become a snare and a trap. Now, Paul, by the way, is not talking about the challenges of building an Ikea table. You know, you've got to get the Allen key in the right place or the whole thing falls apart. That's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is, in the Old Testament particularly, the table is a symbol of blessing. In a moment, that table at the back is going to be filled with bountiful pizzas. Right? A blessing. A symbol of all the good and wonderful gifts of God. But Paul is saying here, but because of our sinfulness and the hardness of our hearts, these good things have instead become a stumbling block and a trap. 
The blessings we receive from God, which show his character as a generous and gracious and good God, should lead our hearts to thank God, instead lead our hearts away from God. And we start to worship the good things rather than the one who gave them. And so our physical appetites for food or or for success or for marks or for family or for future glory, they deaden our spiritual appetite to worship God. And so gifts become idols because of hard hearts. And secondly, religion, which is meant to be a blessing to follow God, actually becomes slavery. Verse 10. Notice again that he speaks of their eyes being darkened, as it was in verse 8. And then he says, may their backs be bent forever. It's a picture of slavery. Of a burden that is never, ever removed. Of people who are blind to the righteousness in Christ's work. And so they're trying to work for it. They're trying to earn it. But as they do, the burden gets more and more and more. And it is back-breaking and it is endless. So Paul is saying, look, we can express our idolatry either way. We can chase after the good things rather than God and worship the gift rather than the giver. Or we can construct a morality that makes our work the basis on which we get right with God. And friends, both will never work. This is what God's word is teaching us. Neither of these things work. Neither of these things give us freedom. Neither of these things enable us to have a right relationship with our creator. They become a trap or an endless burden. As opposed to God's sovereign grace. What are some implications from these challenging truths that God's word has for us this evening? Well, can I say firstly, and this is very important, God's sovereign grace actually gives us boundless comfort and security. Boundless comfort and security. Because our salvation, because your salvation is God's work from beginning to end... It does not depend on you and it does not depend on me. Praise the Lord for that. Just last week would have been a disaster. Forget the rest of my life. I can't get one week right. But saving grace is sovereign grace. And that's unsettling because we like to be in control. But at the same time, it's of great comfort because it means God is in control. Sovereign grace means that nothing you have done can make God love you less. And sovereign grace means there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing in your past that can stop God's sovereign love. You might say, yes, but if you knew what I had done, You would know that that I'm not worthy if you knew those things. And God says, yeah, I know you're not worthy. (laughs) 
Um, my grace isn't dependent upon your worth, your worthiness. It's dependent upon my sovereign grace. Your sin is big. My grace is bigger, says God. But my sin's really big. Yeah, my grace is even bigger. But my, my sin is huge. He says, Look, my grace is even huger. Friends, that is the great blessing of sovereign grace. The roots of your salvation go, go deep down forever into the eternal depths of God's sovereign grace. Which means you can say, you can say with complete confidence that nothing will separate you from the love of God that is in what? Christ Jesus. Not in your own abilities, not in your moral superiority, not in how many times you've been at church, not in how close to the front you sit. By the way, thank you for sitting near the front. It always warms a preacher's heart. It's a problem with coming to church late, you've got to sit at the front. It depends entirely, friends, on that little phrase, in Christ Jesus. Firstly, it gives us boundless comfort. Secondly, sovereign grace convicts us to humble prayer. Since God's grace means he can take for himself anyone he chooses, then how can we do anything else but pray with boldness and with confidence that God is able to save even the hardest and most non-unlikely person ever to be saved. Forget Richard Dawkins, the renowned atheist. Paul points to himself. Now, Paul, by the way, used to be called Saul and used to murder Christians. That is a hard heart. That's a big sin. God's sovereign grace was bigger than Paul's sin. See, friends, God's sovereign grace is the greatest incentive to pray with hope for anyone you know to come to Christ. See, friends, if God must wait for the initiative of those who are lost, if God must wait for the blind to see or for the deaf to hear or for the spiritual dead to raise themselves, then why pray? If it's up to that person, why pray? But if God is able to give sight to the blind, if God is able to open deaf ears, if God is able to spiritually raise the dead, then how can you not pray with boldness for friends and family and colleagues to come to Christ? Because, friends, it's only when God's grace is sovereign grace that God's grace is saving grace. Who shall separate you from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, or anything else in all creation, or university exams, or having never been to university, even though you're a university student because you're stuck online, 
or being far away from friends and family, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. God's sovereign grace calls us. God's sovereign grace chooses us and God's sovereign grace keeps us. Glory be to Christ. I'm going to pray in just a moment and after that we're going to sing a song that reflects on this very great truth that when we come to the cross of Christ we bring in our hands nothing. That could our zeal forever be that means nothing. That Christ and Christ alone must save us. Let me pray. Our gracious Sovereign Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that your grace is sovereign grace, that your grace can soften the hardest heart, that your grace means that we are forever kept in your mercy. Father, may we find that deep and boundless comfort in knowing that no matter what our sin is, your grace is bigger. And may our hearts be prompted to humble prayer. May we pray with hope for hardened people because your grace can soften the hardest of hearts. Amen.